I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. He's like carrying these post-colonial scenes like, like many black people, many Nigerians, Africans feel too. Like, like, oh, like we feel we are, we are subservient, we are not good enough as white people. The influence of colonialism and the ideals of Western culture being superior don't just permeate through the minds of those from the West. These ideas also trickle down to the oppressed. For many young people in Africa, this narrative has convinced them that their culture is not enough, that they can only find true happiness and success by following Western ideals. Andrew Aziza is a 15-year-old boy living in Contagora in northern Nigeria and wrestles with this very notion, infatuated by the idea of blonde white women from the West. He's the star of The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy Africa. In this incredible coming-of-age story, we follow him on a journey of self-discovery in the shadow of colonialism and communal violence. This is the debut novel from Nigerian author Stephen Boro, and I am delighted to say that he's my guest today. Chapter 1, Andy Africa. Andrew is an incredibly intelligent and highly emotional young boy. He's angry about his continent and his country. He's in love with the West and the idea of dating a blonde girl, all while desperate to fix the world's problems. He lives with his secretive mother, Gloria, and spends his days about town with his droogs, his gang, Slim and Morocco. He's contemplating the larger questions with his teacher, Zara, and his equally brilliant friend, Fatima, who clearly has feelings for him. Together they discuss mathematical theorems, black power, and what Andy has deemed the curse of Africa. And in among his love of science, he's also highly spiritual, an altar boy who often speaks to the spirit of his older brother, Idna, who died at birth. Andrew, who later becomes known as Andy Africa, is a character who walks onto the page and demands to be listened to. I mean, he's angry, you know, and and the young guys from those point of love, like he loves his place. I mean, even though he wants to leave, that complicated love of, like you re- strongly love something that you, you seem a bit very critical of it, right? Of, uh, yeah. And again, on the other hand, again, he's, um, I mean, he's funny, he's playful. I love that playfulness, that playful aspect to him. And and again, we see those different, like, I mean, he's, uh, is this, he can be a bit nerdy too. I mean, he, he's into science fiction and fantasy and, uh, Mars poetry and all that. So yeah, but that anger, of course, that anger stems from from one. I mean, he feels that he has been, I mean, he has been dealt very, very, like very, very bad cards, right? Like, I mean, from his parents, like his parents never had any opportunity and he had had no good opportunities to succeed in life. I mean, he could just trace, he couldn't trace any, I mean, his lineage to perhaps any great style when things were, were great. I mean, from his, from his own point of view. But whatever, he's just, he felt as he has been done so, I mean, so many things have just gone so wrong for him. And and, uh, and Eileen appears to show him the kind of life that he, he could have had, and uh, perhaps if things maybe were different. And uh, yeah. I, I was fascinated by the character of, of Eileen. We'll come on to her in a moment because she is yeah. essentially the blonde that he's always dreamed of. But let's <laughs> let's talk about his family. He has He has had a difficult upbringing. He hasn't really known a father and someone claiming to be that person wanders into his life partway through the book. But he has this ongoing dialogue 
this inner dialogue with, and I hope I pronounced this correctly. Is it pronounced Idna? Yeah, Idna, perfect. Correct. So Idna, yeah. <laughs> Idna to me was both, that was both delightful and heartbreaking. Essentially the brother he never had and has kept this brother's memory alive by constantly talking to him. And so he's probably always lived in a world in which his imagination is trying to fill in the blanks of the family that he never he never really had. And of course, that imagination just runs riot. But I thought that was heartbreaking, the fact that he would have this continual, and I guess it's entirely natural, he has this continual dialogue with a brother that doesn't exist. I found that heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, a moment ago, we were talking about like the rage, the anger, and the feels. I think, again, that also comes from not having this brother, this brother that he could have had, because, I mean, if things were better, right? I mean, if, like, there was better healthcare in Nigeria, I mean, things were just better. Probably his mother wouldn't have, I mean, miscarried, I mean, I mean, lost his, his brother, that's Idna, right? I mean, lost him to, I mean, his stillbirth, right? Um, so there, so I think that, that anger too, and and so he wants to have that, that company and the love that he didn't get to have by not having this brother and so I think he he like created in his mind and I mean in a way some in some part of the novel it's actually like uh, that's where some of the magical realism seems to permeate right well I I mean I, I mean I meant I said magical realism but actually if you think about it magical realism is essentially what being a teenager is like because you're you're older than a young child but not old enough to do the things that you want to do so you live in this this in-between world, yeah, don't in you? Between which is world. Yeah. essentially, you know, magical realism. And I, there's a bit quite early on where a teacher talks about children and, and in particular African children, and you're, you're either a, a witch, a wizard, or a superhero, yeah, which is an yeah. astonishing thing to say to a group of young people. And of course, Andy immediately decides to be the superhero, doesn't he? But that yeah. I wonder whether he's living in a magical realism state because he's not old enough to do the things he so desperately wants to do, but is very grown up, very mature, very well read, very numerate, but he's still a boy, isn't he? Yeah, um, I mean, he's just in this this very wonderful state, which, I mean, it's great for a novelist to write about, right? I mean, he's just in this intermediate space where, on the one hand, I mean, he's not somewhere he's a child, and on the other hand, again, he's not an adult. And and so he's just, I mean, transmitting or, I mean, whatever, moving from that from, from the first space to the other. And um, so which creates that rage and that rage that is um, that helps him to articulate the difficult aspects of his situation, his post-colonial situation. I mean, the collapse of his, I mean, of his state, of his country, his continent. Yeah, in many ways. And, uh, and also, um, I, I mean, we were talking about uh, Zara a moment ago about how she, she talks about um, her African children, I mean, or which is wizards or superheroes. And it's very wonderful because, uh, I mean, she presents this counter-narrative to what Andy has been hearing. I mean, throughout Andy's, whatever Andy sees in the media or whatever he reads in the book, in books about Africa, Africa is there's is nothing, or Nigeria, there's nothing in Nigeria, everything is dead, everything is collapsed, which in many ways is true. Yeah, but I mean, there's so much more to it. And, and Andy is trying to create this, uh, and Zara, his teacher, She's trying to create this counter narrative that is so is about yourself, your heritage, that you should be very, very proud of, and uh, that you can you can um, build on and and transform your life to, I mean, to something wonderful. And that is what Idna is actually. Idna is that is that aspect of him, that mm -hmm. African part of him of himself, which 
which has been divorced from him from I mean the complicated situations of his life and um, and the whole like post-colonial uh, nature of Nigeria and, and all that. So I'm going to use the word post-colonial a lot, but it's I think it's a very key word. Chapter two: A Christ-like figure. This book is a novel about identity, spirituality, politics, and the need to escape. Throughout, Andy is forced to reckon with his identity and desires, and how to live on the so-called cursed continent, and he's doing so within such a violent backdrop. The religious violence between different communities in the state is so raw, not least the riot between the Muslim and Christian community that leaves his mum in a wheelchair. In an effort to save his country and his continent, Andrew becomes the superhero Andy Africa, and in doing so begins to feel like a metaphor for Christ, sacrificing himself, learning about temptation, attempting to persuade his droogs to side with his cause. Yes, that was, I mean, very, very much intentional. Um, there's so many subtexts about, for example, the duality. I mean, for example, Andy Idna, uh, science, faith, for example, Africa, the West. So, like, the place of Christ in this life is, is very, very huge. I mean, Christianity, the, I mean, the colonial religion and all that. And um, I mean, throughout his life, I mean, as a, as a church boy, I mean, Christ has been this figure, this Western figure that this person that he should be like, she imitates and, and all that. So just trying to act, to actually play with that and, and to draw out many themes and many messages from that. For example, on the one hand, we can see how, why, how Andy, like, just like uh, Christ's journey, journey of Jesus Christ, um, I mean, according to how the Catholic Church interprets it, how like he dies, he carries the sins of the world. As the Lamb of God, he dies and uh, carries his world and dies for the world for sinners and all. So in, in a way, too, Andy is like that in a way that that he, I mean, he's this 15-year-old boy who's undergoing all these traumas and the horrors. And of course, wonderful times too, the fun, mm-hmm. the, the, the sexual awakening, desire and all that. So he's like carrying these post-colonial sins, like, Appropriated racial oppression that like many black people, many Nigerians, Africans feel too. Like they all like we feel we are we are subservient, we are not good enough as white people as as all that. So carrying so in a way carrying those crosses, yeah, carrying mm. those sins or whatever throughout the arc of the story, you know, through the five sections, the five social mysteries of the story. Yeah, I mean the duality is really pointed, and I really enjoyed it, particularly yeah. science versus fate. Because he spends half of his time, particularly with Fatima, trying yeah. to solve very complicated maths problems. But the rest of his time, they're reading books. And, and it reminded me of my own religious education, in which I went to a Catholic school. And religious studies wasn't really religious studies. It was Catholic studies. Yeah. But the teacher, the teacher had a very clear sense of duality and that secretly... <laughs> probably not supposed to do this but secretly he would also say by the way i should always i should i should also talk to you about darwin's theory of evolution as well so you oh you, wonderful <laughs> yeah you should probably hear the counter narrative yeah. to what I'm, I'm 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 trying to teach you but but yeah so let's let's go on then to to sexual awakening because i want to talk about eileen I know the front cover of the UK version is very different to, to other versions, but it has yeah. Marilyn Monroe on the front of it, right? Yeah. And yeah. he has this idealized sense of the perfect woman being blonde. Yeah, it's a yeah, very different, yeah. very different yeah, cover, isn't it? Very yeah, different yeah. front cover. And so right from fairly early on, Eileen walks onto the page and changes Andy's life. And I 
I have two real thoughts here. One is that he has essentially created this illusion of this woman and has projected it onto Eileen. And so that relationship is immediately doomed, whatever happens to them, because there's no <laughs> yeah. way she can live up to this idealized notion that he's projecting onto her. But also at the same time, he's desperate to be with her. He's desperate to be naked with her. He's desperate to have sex with her. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of felt, I felt happy and sad for him at the same time, because I was like, well, we all have to get our hearts broken for the first time sometime. <laughs> so it might as well be now with Eileen, but I was just reading, yeah. you know, with this real sense of trepidation that I just felt, oh, Andy, mate, like she's all wrong for you. She really is. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I mean, and the sad thing about it is that, I mean, white chasing, I mean, Eileen, I mean, he, he might have like missed love of his life and somebody who perhaps is perfectly meant for, I mean, he recognizes he's so safe away in that sense that he and Fatima shared so much together and, and that they could have like perhaps a perfect life together. But yeah, but in many ways, I mean, it's not just Andy who just, yeah, creates, decides to orchestrate this huge view of Eileen as this perfect woman, the woman that he's he's supposed to be with or he is meant to be with, you know, and it's not just him. And he's just, I mean, his name is Andy, his nickname is Andy Africa, right? He's just, um, he has been dead, as I said, that's so, so many like heavy blows. I mean, even, from, even before he was, was even born. For example, that this post-colonial situation that he's, that he's found himself. Um, and I mean, Western media, for example, I like he watches a lot of Hollywood movies. I mean, reads many Western texts, Western books and all. So, I mean, they've all created the delusion or the ideal in quotes that's oh, like, I mean, this white, blonde, slim, tall woman. Yeah, supposed to be that the ideal, like who he's supposed to crave and who he should desire and and any other kind any other forms of beauty or interpretation of beauty like it's wrong and all right and um, so I mean the novel is also also examining all those aspects too I mean for example when I was my friends and I growing up one of the Hollywood films you watch the Hollywood films you only see like any black woman in it it's just yeah. recently that some black a few black women are now actually getting the opportunity right and apart from that again I mean. His difficult situation, I mean, how everything is crumbling around him, his country, his community, and all that. And she's so, so just this, this person, like, this um, a kind of a savior, somebody who's going to save him, like, in terms of, uh, from the economic sense, right? And so, in, in general, all in all, anyway, she's just this, uh, she's just this chimera, this this uh, metaphor for his appropriated racial oppression, or you might want to call it internalized racism. And, oh, and yeah. Who, yeah, he's trying to, so he's just trying to come to terms or, Resolve all these things internally and also externally. Chapter three, poetry and prose. Andy is a very creative boy who likes to write poetry, and this is reflected throughout the novel in wonderful moments where the prose breaks and we get to read some of his poetry. It makes for a book unlike any other I've read. But writing the narrative of a 15-year-old boy is hard enough because you have to remember what it was like to be that age. So what must it have been like to write the narrative of a 15-year-old boy through the medium of poetry? Because you have to reflect the fact that his skill as a poet will be nascent. It won't be fully formed. I asked Stephen how he dealt with this challenge. I mean, when I was 15, like Andy, I I, mean, I wrote lots of poetry, right? So, so much poetry. And poetry was this huge therapeutic uh, opportunity for me uh, to, I mean, resolve my, my, I mean, my rage, my, I mean, my, my, 
recompleting emotions yeah at the time and also to to actually like articulate my thoughts to understand myself right in a very like beautiful succinct and also so two way too i mean that's what what it does a lot so i think i think that experience really helped me in, in that sense that and and i mean and, and when you read the book i mean the poems there i know apart from a section like chapter 16 right where some things happen and and they will have to go a little bit in depth but but the poetry i think quite very slender i mean like kind of a tasimitis kind of a poetry and slender incisive very small i mean compact and yeah of course not to distract too much from the prose i mean it's supposed to be a novel so it's not it's not a long poem and all that and um, yeah so i think i just borrowed more from that experience and i trusted the reader all oh, that the reader will be turned off and that i'll just try to keep things as Simple, and not just simple in like in a in a bad way, but simple like in a, in a very good way. Simple, uh, succinct, and uh, and clear, and uh, yeah. But I think it's a question I'm going to think about more and more. Yeah, I mean, poetry yeah. is the most economical form of writing. Yeah, in that you are creating a story or painting a picture with as few words as possible. And this is a boy who has a massive imagination. Is very verbose. He has a huge vocabulary. Some of which mm. I understood, some of which I didn't. But that it didn't matter because, as, as I said to you via email, I probably wouldn't understand a conversation between fifteen-year-old boys in my own country now. So the fact that they yeah. were in Nigeria was irrelevant because they're not using words that, and phrases that I would use. So I really liked that. But to go from this guy with this superhero imagination who is dreaming for the world, trying to fix the world, to then see him write really economically through the medium of poetry was was really interesting. And I, and I did get the sense, actually, that that might help his rage. So I'm fascinated to hear that it helped you and yours because it, it is very freeing, writing. I, I do find that writing is, is calming when it's going well, when it's not going well. It's yeah. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, let's talk about Fatima, his friend. We we meet a lot of Fatima um, in this book. I felt I, I loved their relationship, but I felt very sorry for her because she clearly has feelings for this boy. And his mind is completely elsewhere because the last time I checked, Fatima's not tall and blonde. Um, <laughs> Nigerian woman. Yeah. But she she she's in love with him, isn't she? And 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 there's an an inevitability about about the fact that that will be unrequited love. Yeah, and Fatima is just uh, yeah, Fatima is I mean this person who who has been like uh, like betrayed in a way by should I won't say like the consequence of of all that inundation of where Western culture like in Nigeria, for example, and that's and the idea creating this Western ideal, like this ideal white blonde tall like kind of woman. Yes, I mean so she's just this the consequence of all that, and not just she, but also Andy too. I mean, the relationship that he could have had with her. I mean, what they could have built together, and she's also that consequence, and which, which I think, should make readers, especially even young readers, like young black boys, young Nigerian boys, who might read this book too, like think in a different way, and uh, I mean, it can be more, much more African Nigerian way, and or, at, at least in a way that 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 supports us, that favors us in that sense. You talk about young Nigerian boys reading this when you. When you set out on this journey, did you have a sense of where your readers would be? Because my own novels attract a particular type of reader who are interested in a particular genre. The joy of this show is that I get to read across all genres and, and meet writers that write across all genres, people like you. But I 
think what you've ended up with is a book that has universal appeal, not just for, for Nigerian boys. And I think had it just been for Nigerian boys, I think as a writer, you might have failed in your mission because there's so much to learn from me, a Westerner, from this that I think it has it has universal appeal. Was that important to you? Did you want universal appeal from your readership or, or did you have a, a very narrow readership in mind? I mean, when I was writing, I mean, when the idea first came to my mind, I wasn't thinking, oh, like, with, uh, with my neighbor, I feel like, like the book, my neighbor in Nigeria or something, or my friends or or with some imaginary people in the West, wherever, because at that time, I hadn't even visited the UK, so I didn't even know. So, like, we didn't like my writing. And all that. I, was, I wasn't thinking about all that at all. I just, I mean, for me as a reader, I read, like, broadly then when I was growing up, especially when I was 13, like, I read very, very broadly, like read so much. And, and somehow what I was writing, I think that was a reader I had in mind. Like this reader who who had this, this eclectic taste for books and uh, um, who was not very subjective about what he wanted to read and all. And so either, if I had anyone in, in mind, perhaps just my 13-year-old self. But what I did, I was just trying to write a story that I felt that engaged me, right? That uh, that motivated me to, to complete it and to follow it, to discover what it was all about. And I feel that, oh, if I do my part of the backing very well, perhaps maybe a random reader somewhere, whether in Russia or or somewhere in Kutungura in Nigeria or in Lagos in Nigeria, or any, anywhere, I mean, would resonate. I think, and because, I mean, a novel is, for me, is a store of human pain, a store of human emotions, human experience, and and we're all humans. And so we often like relate to books from like any part of the world. Yeah. Well, I mean, right from the get go, when you realize that this is essentially going to be a coming of age story set in a part of Nigeria that most people will not have heard of unless they're from Nigeria. All of that becomes irrelevant because it's a young boy growing up. Right. And and yeah. everyone's been a young person growing up. So it doesn't matter where he is or what happens to him. I think we will all I mean, I recognize myself in it many times, even though we couldn't be more different. But that. I think is the joy of it is that stories like this, whether they be love, hate, reconciliation, abuse, trust, all of that, they're all universal themes. So it, it doesn't really matter where it was set. I particularly enjoyed the language and words and phrases that I didn't understand. The color comes flooding through. I spoke to a writer from Trinidad earlier in this series, and I, I made the same point to him is that I really appreciated those local touches, those words and phrases that I've never heard before. I would never use them, but I loved how authentic they were. And I tried to imagine what words and phrases I used when I was, you know, 15. But it very quickly becomes, as I've said before, irrelevant because it's just a gang of friends and they're doing things they shouldn't be doing at times, but they're young yeah. boys. They'll make mistakes. We've all made mistakes as young boys and young and young girls, but I particularly enjoyed the color that you put in, in terms of words and phrases and, and the, the droogs, that was a term I'd never heard, looked it up and went, Oh, a gang. Okay, great. Cool. Well, we're, we're, we're in for the ride. So I, I thought that was good. So I think that your readers will really enjoy your use of, of local words and phrases in that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, I first, I wrote the first draft of the book when I was in Nigeria, but so these, the subsequent draft where, where, when I was uh, here in, in the UK in Norwich, so uh, when I found myself here, I I, I realized I felt that uh, Nigeria felt, or my at least my community in Nigeria where I lived and grew up, felt much more closer to me. Like 
Like I could, I could see things much more clearer. I could smell things I mean, better or easier, I don't know. And I think that helped. And I, I wanted to give as authentic a portrait as I could of I mean, this northern Nigerian town, I mean, northern Nigeria in, in general, in particular. So I'm, I mean, because this region is hardly written about, only a few people from, from, this, from this region have, have, I mean, gotten the opportunity of being, I mean, recognized writers and, I mean, writers in English in particular. And, and so I just wanted, I mean, I had this privilege of growing up in this place to, yeah, now to finally like write about it. So, and I, I, so I hope readers will get a sense of what it means, a sense at least, what it means to live and grew up in, in these places as completely different from their own day-to-day experiences. People listening to this episode on the day of release, The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Annie Africa is out tomorrow. You will inevitably be busy with press and interviews and the reviews will come in. You'll have to confront yeah. that, obviously. <laughs> but what's next for you as a writer, Stephen? Are you are you working on something else? And I understand you might not be able to talk about it, but but where do you as a writer go from here? Yeah, so I mean, for from here, I, I'm I'm going to like to work on my my subsequent novel. Um, yeah, I mean, it has to be a novel. I strongly resonate with the novel form. And uh, so I'm just a bit in the crossroads, right? Is he in the crossroads? At the crossroads. I'm trying to, yeah, so things could just change. I could, what I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to write next, man, end up not being what I end up uh, working working on. So I might say, uh, so we'll see, but but definitely a novel, yeah. I just can't wait to just, to just get back to work and and to see, to try my hand at something else. And uh, I mean, I've learned a lot what I think this book. Uh, I mean, the end, of course, doesn't matter what you've learned because each book is different, right? But um, yeah, but we'll see. And I, I have so many things to write about it. I mean, being in Nigeria, I mean, even though things are so bad, things are so bad in Nigeria, things are difficult and, and all that. But it just gives a, a writer wonderful, very wonderful material to write about and so many things to explore and all that. Yeah. So I hope readers get to, I mean, get to buy this book and, and look at my, my subsequent books. Well, I certainly think readers will connect with this book. It is a devastatingly fierce, subversive, and all of the words we talked about novel. Uh, I wish you huge amounts of success with it. As I've said, The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy Africa is out tomorrow if you're listening to this on the day of broadcast. Stephen Boro, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. A very wonderful conversation. Thank you. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Stephen Borrow for today's episode and to recap, what have we learnt? Think not only about the conflicts between characters and their personalities in your writing, but also the duality and conflict between the themes that you're tackling, like that narrative of science versus faith we see in Stephen's novel. Break the mould and experiment with new writing styles. Stephen added poetry throughout with great effect. Perhaps your next character could be a poet too, or something else entirely. Don't be too tied to the idea of writing for a specific person, the perfect avatar. While it's often very helpful to have your potential audience in mind, if you keep emotion at the heart of your writing, everyone will be able to connect with your story in some way. And finally, unique language. Those little words and phrases we only hear in our local town or country speak so powerfully to who we are and who we perceive ourselves to be. Wherever in the world you're writing about, consider using these words to paint an authentic portrait of life within that community. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events, titled Inside Stories, are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 